What makes a law firm? It's about passion, knowledge, understanding, and service. That's what defines Fluxman's. In this podcast series, we take you behind the desks of some of South Africa's smartest legal minds. Peter Kemp is a specialist in mergers and acquisitions, foreign direct investment structures, and all the applicable laws and regulations in mining, mining regulation, equity and debt funding, corporate structuring, info technology, all aspects of BEE, which is particularly relevant to South Africa now and in the last few years, but funding and producing films, which is interesting, and general corporate and commercial law, and he's been a partner at Fluxman since 2011. Now, I don't know where to even start with this monster because that's a lot of areas of law. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, of it that's interrelated. But this is, this is interesting stuff because it has very direct effects on South Africa's economy. Mergers and acquisitions are some of the, you know, the, the biggest deals we read about in the newspapers, some of the things that people think is the glamorous part of law. Um, I would imagine, though, that you have a different take on that. Let us into the room when these things happen. Well, most transactions are not glamorous. They're, they're, um, they're driven by a need on either side of the transaction. Um, could we not go back to the introduction? <laughs> <laughs> no. I want to know how you, how you put these together because it is the lawyers who put them together. You know, they're, they're these parties who try, to, who try to reach some kind of agreement, but then it's up to the lawyers to hammer out the details very often. Yes. It's, uh, the, one of the... The key aspects I enjoy about my job is trying to work out a solution to transactions and to sticking points because I believe that often lawyers do get um, immersed in too much detail that often wouldn't be necessary for the clients, but they make those details deal breakers and occasionally transactions can fail as a result of that. So, and that relates to a point that... Um, that is close to my heart, which is about any transaction, no matter how big or small, has a natural balance to it. Um, and it starts right at the embryonic stages of a transaction where the buyer would want to do a due diligence on its target. Right. And sometimes that's the first the target actually gets to hear about it is they get asked to open their doors, pull their pants down, so to speak, and the bunch of lawyers and accountants come in and start looking through the, the, the records and the books. And, of course, us lawyers are very, very good to point out how bad things are. We love mm-hmm. that. And um, and we overstress the negativity rather than say, well, those things are not material in a transaction. Does it really matter if you didn't pass a resolution when you ought to have 10 years ago? Yeah. Right now, it doesn't. But you'll be surprised how often those things are raised or whether – Whatever. You know, they're they're it's a myriad. Put, it's put under a magnifying glass. It is and, put in. And then a company which otherwise is run very successfully because of these minor details can look to be, you know, in contravention of their, their own fiduciary duty and so on. Correct. That's what is sometimes the objective of a, what we call a high level intense due diligence. And then on top of that, you would have a, what we call a boilerplate full of Boilerplate, in other words, vanilla type thing. We'd have a boilerplate, um, pages and pages of warranties that the sellers have to comply with. So you have an intensive transaction, intensive due diligence to precede the, precede the transaction. And then you have this boilerplate of warranties. And again, it just stacks up on the one side versus, as I was saying earlier, the balance, 
which if you want to do an intensive due diligence, by the time you finish that, you should have a fairly good view of what the target is and what it isn't. Because M&A culture and research will show you that transactions often fail because it's not about the terms of the deal or the merging parties. It's the culture, the culture of senior senior executives. And also there are expectations on both sides that then have to be managed. And I would imagine a lot of these things, when they get scuppered after months and months of work, can be very depressing. I mean, for you know, particularly if you put a lot of work into something and it falls apart on some minor detail, it, it must get very annoying for you. Uh, simultaneously, when it works, it must be very exhilarating. Absolutely. Exhilarating, because if you've gone through challenges. Um, depressing, probably a strong word, but, but certainly a disappointment. Mm-hmm. Depressing for the seller if it fails, and sure. sometimes for the purchaser, depending on the cost structures, and these things are never, never cheap. They're always expensive. It's just a question of the extent. Um, no transaction any, uh, these days, if the lawyers and auditors are involved, is not, inex- is not expensive. Mm. Um, I, it can also, if a transaction fails, as you've often seen, it can affect the buyer because, or the seller, especially if those are public entities, and um, people, entities. people suppose that they know Something the reasons wrong. for that. Yeah, yes. this, this, this company's not worth what they thought Correct. they were. And then you have a sell-off of shares and all kinds of other possible Correct. ramifications. Correct, that's right. So uh, there is gravity here. <laughs> it's my point. <laughs> <laughs> well, to create, I'm going back to the original point. There's a balance. So there's a balance where the lawyers should be able to advise the clients on expectations and say, let's classify these things according to a risk matrix. Hmm. Low, medium, and high. What you should be left with is one or two high things, and that's where you apply your warranties. And don't worry about the low and medium, because commercially, they're not important, especially if the transactions is what the clients, the respective clients require. So, So, And sometimes we lose sight of that as lawyers, because we want to, there's there's an inherent conflict of interest, right? We sell ours. Yeah. And we try and and the, the client always thinks that you're charging too much. Correct. You always think that you're not charging enough. Correct. Right. So mergers and acquisitions as they are in South Africa today, I would imagine that it's a, it's a difficult situation now. You know, that when the economy is not growing as fast as you'd like, there aren't obviously as many mergers and acquisitions. Uh, South Africa, in, in the eyes of many um, international markets, uh, not not going in the right direction. Has that slowed down quite a lot? Yes, it has. M&A work, especially mining, um, after 2008, after the, the, the debacle with the Department of Mineral Resources. Ministers, why name? All of that, it's slowly, uh, not slowly, it's fallen off a cliff to a large extent. Um, we have been, we've seen some revival of, of the, of the, Pace picking up now. Um, seen more transactions coming through. Just as a me- measure, I, I, at the time when various decisions were made at the governmental level, I, I had three or four transactions underway, mm-hmm. quite far, and there was the buyers just departed and said, "Look, let us know when things improve." So that's now that's changing now. The commodity the commodity cycles are turning although they're very volatile, and we tend to see that in mining. I think South Africa does face a real mining um, a vote of non-confidence at the moment because mm-hmm. of the 
policy and the regulatory issue. Um, it's so complicated, right? I mean, mining is. is onerous. Well, it is. And I was listening to something on the radio yesterday about the, the, the proposed mining by an Australian company on the Wild Coast. And looking at the conflicting reports, and there seems to be some political insta- involvement. And well, every if you every single person's view is political, of course. But and it's just so difficult because yes, we do want to improve the country's GDP and what we export, but at the same time, we've got to look at the sustainability of what's going to be happening down there. And whether it's going to spoil a long-term resource. So explain to me how, if an international company is interested in getting involved in mining in South Africa, or they want to make an investment in an existing mining company, how hard is that? Why should they have to comply with our quite necessary local BE regulations um, and effectively pay extra for getting less? I mean, how do you explain that to them? If, they, if they're still keen <clears throat> by the time you've explained it, how do you get them to sign? Sure. Now, uh, look, in South Africa has local local ownership in, or indigenization laws or local shareholder laws like much, uh, not much, uh, many other countries. Our, we, we start from the premise that the country owns the natural resources that haven't yet been discovered, mapped, and mined. I.e. the state. Yes, the state. Big pardon, we. So the state owns that for the benefit of the people as a whole. The, clearly the only way the state can economically and feasibly uh, mine those resources is to allow it to be mined by private sector entities. The state-owned entities have failed dismally. So if you're an international entity, I think the local, the local cost of doing a mining project um, is a known entity to most territories in the in the world, so it's it's a it's a it's a given. I think sometimes, if it was if if the if the regulatory landscape was certain and not arbitrary, it would assist a lot. But we've been through the the the, the landscape where people were f- seen on cameras, photocopying people other people's applications through the courts. Uh, we've we've heard of so all of that. A lot of irregularity. There's a lot of irregularity. But we've got the, the labor. We've got the resources underground. We've we've certainly got uh, an ability in terms of infrastructure to be able to implement fairly quickly here. Why are we our own worst enemy when it comes to something that's almost a fait accompli? We were mining in 1900. Well, setting up a when you say when going back to your earlier comment about local, why would you have to pay additional costs? I think BEE, Black Economic Empowerment, at its best is, is, I believe it's a national imperative. I believe that it's something we have to do as a country. I think transformation is extremely important. But I, if you're a German, you don't have to care about that. Well, I think if you, if it can be explained to the Germans or to any other international, um, investor of what it means for their investment in the country that if if there is compliance, as long as there's no arbitrariness and there's um, regulatory certainty, that if you are mining for 50 years and you want a 50-year mining right, um, or the 22 or 26 years, which is the standard one, you will know that your right will be in place for the length of that mine. And therefore, you know that you're going to be able to, you will do your numbers, because that's what any savvy investor will do and say, 
It's worth it. Uh, it's worth it. Right. Whereas in other countries, it could be that that mining right, if there wasn't economic um, um, stability and sustainability, it could be interrupted after three or four or five or whatever. So that is the benefit of having a certain environment and something where you believe that it is sustainable. Does it irritate you because you're informed about these things and because you, you're, you're involved in creating precedent very often in representing enormous mining interests and, and, and talking about this stuff almost on a daily basis? Does it irritate you when uninformed people, in particular, you know, noisy politicians, talk about things like, you know, the mining rights, which are already in the hands of the state? I don't think a lot of people understand simple things like this that, you know, people, there are people who still think that if you own a farm, you also have mining rights to that farm. You don't. No, you don't, unfortunately. Uh, I think the land debate and the mining right or the mining, the right to mine debate shouldn't be conflated. Mm. They must be kept separate. Um, obviously the right to mine, however, must be subject to the environmental laws right. and the ability to sustain ourselves. I refer back to that issue about the, the mining on the wild coast. So, for example, there is an eco-tourism opportunity or initiative. I don't know the details, and I'm not saying yes or no as to which is better, mm -hmm. but that should theoretically go on forever, or as long as the eco-environment the, the eco is, is viable. Right. Whereas a mining right will come in, strip the land, take the product, and off and you go in 23 years and leave a mine dump. Mm. So that is the difference. And unfortunately, I think certainly from what I know about, we lose sight of the longer term. It's not just 23s of fast extraction make five shareholders wealthy yeah. okay, versus a whole community. They certainly will get some benefit out of the mining in the shorter term, but will they benefit long term? Will their children still be able to live on that land and make a living out of it? And I think we lose sight of that. I think, so that, I think everybody in the world is losing sight of the long-term benefits. You know, my son has just done a, a project for his leadership project um, in grade seven, and it's on the plastic waste that's floating around the oceans. <clears throat> And although we all hear about it, we don't really, it doesn't really touch our lives. I still see people taking straws. I still see people taking cups for plastic things. I still see people buying plastic bottles, and we shouldn't. Firms, thankfully, Fluxman's has moved to only glass, which is a right. great thing. I hate going to a law firm where you have plastic bottles given out as foot in water. Sorry, water in plastic bottles. Yeah. Um, because we're just not aware of it. But the plastic... So that's going to kill us, as my son says in the closing line. Let's not throw our future away because that's what's going to happen. Yeah, that's that, well, he sounds like he's going to be either an environmental so, activist or lawyer of some kind. I mean, that's powerful stuff. Well, to the point, it's just about we mustn't, in in the practice of our law and the practice of our regulations, we must try and remember it's not about us. We're here, but it's for our future generations. So I believe you are a very keen cyclist. I am, yes. All right. That so keeps that, me sane. Is that on, on the roads or off-road? On the road, okay. a little you, bit of off-road. You could be sane on the roads in, in Johannesburg? On a bicycle? You take your life in your hands. Well, we go in groups and we hopefully, the, 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 margin, um, the margin for error and therefore the percentage of risk is reduced by however many, if you've got one person, your, your risk 
of death, injury, and loss is reduced by 50%. And obviously, that's multiplied. Like, oh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> but Peter, surely you, you don't have that much time for it. As much as you say it clears your head, um, how often do you get to do this, this kind of thing? I'll do, I'll ride on the weekends, two long rides. Um, fortunately, my children are older now. When I was younger, I couldn't do that. I wasn't sure. a golf father or a cycling father, but now I will cycle early in the morning, finished by nine, done my 100 kilometers each morning, and ready to face the rest of the week after that. And do you find there's a lot of pressure to keep up? I mean, you're, you're talking about mining law and BE law. These are some of the most fluid parts of our law. They're, they're always changing. They're organic. There are they're, Those precise uncertainties you were talking about in almost every nook and cranny of these areas of law. So there's a lot of pressure for you to keep up to date, right? There is. There is, Gareth. Um, I think that applies across the board, though. It does. It applies to every lawyer. Um, I used to be very involved in telecoms, um, cell phones. We used to act for um, every single internet and um, telephone provider except for the networks. Um, and as we thought that one set of laws had been bombed, blasted, massaged, sorted out, they would change the law. And off we'd go again, and the clients would carry on knocking on our door. And it's unfortunate, but that's what happens when they when there is significant change to regulations and regulatory landscapes, is that you know the lawyers have to keep up, the clients need to keep on finding the solutions and the alternatives, and that I suppose is a human trait. Humans will always try and work out ways in which they can make their businesses more efficient. And if they need to make the laws work for them, then they have to come to our specialists to try well, certainly, and assist them. Certainly get the politicians and the regulators to speak with one voice or to at least make give us clarity. Otherwise, it's impossible to do business. That's absolutely true. And sometimes true. you need lawyers to help make that happen. That's absolutely true. That's what we do do. And, of course, the more they change, the more, more it allows – us to introduce the uncertainty and to once you have uncertainty then then the the the, the parameters of of what you can and can't do actually broaden so in other words if you have a certain law it's clear and it's well thought out and it is concise there are no two interpretations of it um, or there should be the room for different interpretations is reduced ameliorated as soon as you have laws such as, to be quite blank, our, our mining charter, mm. you can drive a bus through several of those <laughs> words and, and, and phrases. And so all that does is introduce uncertainty, and that's in nobody's interest. No. Well, then I, I think finally just a, a thank you because we don't know exactly what kind of, of direct influence you might have had on the fact that the Internet is now ubiquitous and that in South Africa, the telecom world is exploding and that there are suddenly for ordinary people opportunities to access information like never before. And I'm sure that some of the cases you've dealt with over the years have had something to do with that. So, yes, I have. So thanks. <laughs> thanks. I do. On my, on, my, on my desk, I have a mug yeah? with the, with the um, slogan, Google will never replace a well-trained lawyer. I love it. You've been listening to Fluxman's Attorneys for the Love of Law. 
For more information, go to fluxmans.com.